now on Radio Italia Uno. It's time to change the world with Matt McQuinley. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We focus on changing the world for the better by taking personal responsibility, canceling cancel culture, discussing and listening to each other on topics like leadership, cultural trends, business, history, and more. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Right now on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Welcome to the show. We're here with Susan Knapp. Uh, good friend, or friend, am I allowed to say friend, or am I pushing things? No, you're allowed to say friend. Okay, I thought so. <laughs> I thought we were friends, but, you know, you never can tell. <laughs> okay. But we're here with Susan Knapp. Thank you for coming today. Thank you for having me. I hope we're still going to be friends by the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll see. <laughs> we will see. Okay, all right. No, but seriously, I, we're, I feel really privileged to have her here today. Susan's a, a mother, a thought leader, an author, an educator, and so much more. We're going to talk a little bit about her new book today, uh, which is called Nothing is Too Big, uh, which is very inspirational, has a lot of great life lessons in it, and I can't wait to dig into it. But I just want to tell you a little bit about Susan first so you know some of the exciting stuff that's coming. Uh, she spent over 25 years working in places like Africa, Asia, the Middle East, as well as Australia. I mean, she was held hostage in a bank in Kenya. I'm not making these things up. She uh, was involved in a train derailment and overturning in Thailand. Uh, she was under arrest in Qatar. Uh, she's... Uh, uh, had so, I mean, she's adopted two children. She's had two children of her, her own. She's been a uh, victim of domestic violence. Uh, she's running some exciting non-for-profits right now. I could go on and on, but I don't want to steal her thunder. You've got how many, how many degrees do you have? Uh, I think I have about three, four degrees. About yeah. three or mm, four? Three or four. Three or four. So yeah. none of them are in math because you don't know the exact yeah, number. No. Okay. And, and I kind of try they're, to, they're to block arts. those sort of things out nowadays because it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's true. Sometimes uh, an education means that you think uh, more inside the box than out of the box. And that's yeah. something you're going to talk about is out-of-the-box thinking, I'm sure. Absolutely. So uh, – why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your new book and why you wrote it? So, the, thanks for having me, Matt. The Pleasure's new book is called "Nothing Is Too Big," and it really is the the epiphany of my my life experience and really understanding that whatever life throws at us, we don't have to be a victim of it. And the reason why I wrote the book was mainly because. Through my life and all of these amazing, enriching experiences that I've had, people have constantly said to me, Susan, you need to write a book. Mm. Susan, you need to write a book. Susan, when is the book coming out? And actually, the first two-thirds of the book I wrote probably about five years ago. Mm. And I'd just been fired from a job I was working at in Rwanda, mm. in Central Africa, and um, was left in a bit of a destitute situation. Um, my daughter, who was two at the time, and I took a 39-hour bus ride from uh, Kigali to Nairobi, and I sat on one mattress in one tiny room because that was all I could afford, 
and the book literally downloaded. So the first two-thirds of the book is written in the form of letters to my mum, mm. of me basically offloading all of these life experiences that I'd had over the last 25 years. Mm. Wow. That's exciting. That's powerful <laughs> stuff. So I'm, I'm just going to d- dig in with some questions. Go I for mean, it. I should probably preface it more, but we, we have limited time, and I, I've known you for, what, a year and a half now? Yeah. But there's some stories here that I haven't even heard. <laughs> That I that I want to get into. I mean, so, so tell me about. You didn't tell me about the train derailment ever. Okay? Well, I mean, it's not really and, something and, I just bring up in conversation. Well, I, mean, it's kind of, I don't know. <laughs> but tell us about. I mean, what happened? I mean, tell me about it. So the train derailment happened in uh, 2013. Uh huh. And I'd gone on holiday to Thailand. Mm-hmm. I had my um, second husband mm-hmm. and my two. Two of my children, mm-hmm. my two, my then they were my two youngest children, mm-hmm. and we were on an overnight train from Bangkok to Chiang Mai. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, have you ever been on that train? It has no, it no. has bunk beds. I've stayed out of Thailand because you know. Okay, because trains I, derail. Well, no, because I was a single man until I was thirty-eight. Oh, let's I, not go there. And, I, and I, I'm a good Christian boy, and I one of the ways I stay good is I avoid temptation. Ta- yeah, yeah, that's 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 a very good idea. Well, I was there with my family, uh-huh. and we were doing the overnight train from Bangkok to Chiang Mai, which takes about twelve hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were asleep in the bunk beds on the train, and. At about three o'clock in the morning, the um, the back section of the train un- unhinged itself from the engine, mm. and twenty one carriages went rolling backwards. Huh. Wow! And tipped over. Wow! So we were awoken by now being tipped completely on our side. The the side of the train obviously became now the roof of the train, and of course, everybody inside the train. Automatically, we thought we were going to end up in water. Mm. So everybody panicked mm. and we we had to find everybody inside. Like my kids were on the other were side. Were all the, the lights bus. out? And was this all in total yeah, darkness? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything was – I think everything was dark. We ended up using the table to smash through the, the window, which had become the roof. Wow. Uh, climbed out onto the roof and down the the tr- the – the wheels of the train mm. acted as steps wow. for us to then get down. And we were very fortunate to not be near water. Huh. And we were in the jungle for about five hours before they sent a rescue train in to um, get us out. There were there was no nobody died in the accident. Oh wow, that's good. Yeah, nobody died. There were a few injuries, so they took the injured people out first. Mm-hmm. My son, who was oh maybe about four at the time, I'd wrapped him up and put him to sleep in between the railway sleepers in the jungle, and the the bed sheet was covered in blood. So everyone thought he was dead, <laughs> and he wasn't dead. We were just trying to get him to go to sleep, and he did, and he slept. And so about five hours later, we were rescued by a train that took us out, um, got on a bus and got taken to Chiang Mai. Wow. So yeah. that's, 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 uh, wild and wacky. So what, what do you, so it's like the Poseidon <laughs> adventure, except without the water and fatalities. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what, uh, what, uh, what did you learn from that? Experience. Well, that wasn't even my only train crash. Yeah, there was another train crash in my very early days in Kenya. And I actually wasn't on this train, but I'd taken the train the night before. Mm -hmm. And the night 
of the crash, I was there as a, a supervisor of a teenage exchange program. And the night of the crash, we actually had our students on the train mm. and it went into water. Oh, my goodness. So we were very blessed um, on that day to have none of our students um, died in that train crash. There were some people who died. And, yeah, so there's something about trains. My daughter now will not take a train anywhere. Mm. I'm still okay with trains. Mm. Um, but in terms of what did I learn, I think uh, – what did I learn? We've, we'd had lots of other things happen before that, so we were kind of used to these things. These, yeah. okay. We're kind of used to it. Um, you learn to be really grateful for every moment. Oh. And – yeah, not take things too seriously. Wow. Quite often those situations are far worse for the people observing from the outside than the people who are actually in them. So it hurts your sleeping or in your kids sleeping? Because, you know, I mean, you're asleep and then boom, something happens like that that didn't hurt anybody's? No, okay. not with us. Not with us. It didn't. We, yeah, but we, we sort of have cumulative trauma. So, <laughs> yeah, I know. We're, we're yeah, going to get to that. Yeah, in a yeah, yeah. Here. So this one was, this one was okay because we'd had so much before. All right. Okay. Train wreck. <laughs> ah, big deal. Yeah. 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 yeah but like I said, my, unless there's a fireball, it doesn't count. Huh? Yeah. Okay. It's, right. it was because the thing is, we were all okay. Mm hmm. We were all okay. The The rescue team were amazing. The The village that we were taken to, they all came out and gave us food and everything. So they were amazing. We got to where we were going. So that was amazing. And it was just a little bit of a glitch along the way. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, again, you didn't. You never told me about uh, being a hostage in a bank. So, <laughs> I, I don't sort of go around talking about these things. Well, Maybe this is why people say, well, "Susan, you need to write a book." Well, no, you, tell, you told me a lot of stuff that we're going to talk about later. But I mean, I I missed on the hostage on a bank too. So talk to me about that. I mean, I read a little bit in the book, but yeah, tell yeah. me tell that me, was probably my first. How did how did that happen? And then what was going through your mind? Tell, tell that us. was probably my first uh, trauma. Uh, external sort of trauma. And I guess it's important to, to note here as all of this chaos is going on in my life that I was born and raised in Adelaide. Mm -hmm. So I had a pretty conventional upbringing. I moved to Kenya when I was 21. Mm -hmm. And when I was oh, maybe 23 or 24 was when I was going to meet some friends who worked in the bank and we were going away for the weekend. And the moment I got inside the bank, it was a Saturday morning. We were, I was meeting them inside the bank, packing their bags. And then we were going um, out of town for the weekend. And as soon as I got in, they closed the bank doors. And there was all of this chaos. Well, it was really polite for them to wait for you like that. <laughs> well, yeah, I wonder what would have happened had I been on the outside of the mm. doors. Because we ended up being held inside the bank for about six hours. Mm -hmm. And there were it was some political fracas at the time. And there were guys with guns and stuff outside the street. And we were inside the bank. Those days we didn't have mobile phones. Mm -hmm. And we, yeah, we just waited. The The military or the police at some point tried to tear gas us out. So we'd probably been in for about four hours at this point, And then all of this tear gas. Have you ever been tear gassed? It, I'm trying to remember if it was on my list of things to do. <laughs> um <laughs> Actually, believe it or not, I did have a little bit of problem with that on a training exercise once. There we go. go. 
so yeah, they they threw these canisters of tear gas in and just the most putrid toxic smell that mm-hmm. you could all you could do is literally lie down on the ground mm-hmm. and but we still didn't go out it was sort of like um what's going to be the safest option here mm. so we didn't leave eventually we had some friends who were outside of the city who managed to get in um to the back door of the bank with a car and we got out so they crashed into the back of the bank with the car no, there was a door. There was a door. There was okay. a door. So those people ended up getting into town in their vehicle and picked us up through the back door of the bank. So why were they? Why, why, so why did they? Why were you a hostage in the bank? What did they want? Did they want money? Was no, that a no, no. Statement? It was we were we were held hostage there because of what was happening outside. Oh, okay. yeah. So it was political fracas that was occurring. Oh, okay, so you were in the middle of a we got you know a government uh, yeah. demonstration. Yeah. Did the government last or – I mean, I, I don't uh, the know what year that was. Yeah, the government did last and lasted for quite some time. And there That's was interesting because Kenya is one of the most stable countries in Africa. Mm, yeah, this was, this was some political fracas in the 90s uh-huh. and it, it went on. I was caught up in a couple of other little skirmishes, but – those things, they actually don't. I don't think they happen anymore. I still spend lots of time there. And Apartheid ended in, what, 1991? That a... was in South Africa. Yeah, I know, mm. but, I yeah. mean, but it did oh. spill over to other... I can't yeah, remember. I can't we'll have to double-check that mm. one. But anyway, okay, so, that's, so there's some other fun stuff that you've had. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about... I want to talk about uh, your kids real quick. You've got four kids, mm-hmm. and your oldest is 25, and the other three, I guess, even though they're really young, you've been uh, coaching and working with them on being influencers like yourself. Can you give us a Can you give us a quick lowdown on on you know these future Nobel laureates you're raising? Wow, you know? well, I'll take that as such a compliment. Well, it is. I think um, if uh, the kids are also mentioned in the book because basically what happened. What has happened in our life story, and I'll take the fact that you called me an influencer as a huge compliment. Um, we we understood that all of the chaos and the drama that had embroiled our life that led us to a lack of peace within ourselves and peace within our lives, uh, it culminated at a point where I my children were taken away from me for three years, mm. and. Again, another whole sequence of events. I was um, held under country arrest in Yeah, Qatar, we're going to come back to that one. Yeah. And they were in Australia. Mm-hmm. And so what I learnt that, through that, this is a bit of a backstory about where they are now. Mm-hmm. What I learnt through that was, you know, in our culture, it's very rare for the mother to be separated from the child. And mm. we, we don't miss Mother's Day and we don't miss birthdays and we don't miss Christmases. We're always there. But in lots of cultures, mothers don't have that privilege. Mm. And including in the Middle East where I'd lived and, and including in Rwanda where we, they'd lived through genocide. So when I was reunited with my children after three years, we then really had to get to know each other again. Mm. And they had a younger sibling who they'd been separated from at, when she was six months old. So it was really about creating this family culture. And I got back to Australia and thought, there's things that we're doing here in our culture that I don't think is servicing the souls of our children. And uh, so we decided to do things a little bit differently. Mm. And that has resulted in the children, the three youngest children, each having their own social enterprises. Mm-hmm. 
they started off by using the barefoot investor model of mm-hmm. um, saving and splurging and giving mm-hmm. and really understanding the culture of being contributors mm. to society. Mm. And so that was very much the, the value system and the ethos that I wanted my children to be raised under. So I took lots of risks mm. and got lots of criticism. And the little one is only eight. Mm. But um, as I think we're going to talk about it later, but yeah. she has now been featured in the Barefoot Investor yeah. book. We're going, to talk about, <laughs> we're going to talk about your eight, 13 and 18-year-old and how they're changing the world and being featured on places like SBS and <laughs> in the new advertiser newspaper and in the Barefoot Investor and every other <laughs> platform besides uh, Stockholm receiving a Nobel Prize right, af- right after these messages. Radio Italia Uno. You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. We're back with Susan Knapp, mother, thought leader, educator, author, and mentor, role model, and mother of three future Nobel Prize laureates, in my opinion, uh, who are making a big difference and all run their own social enterprises at the age of 18 and under. So... I don't know which order you want to go in because all your kids are so amazing, but uh, pick a child and tell us the cool <laughs> stuff they're doing, please. Um, so let me let me just give you a, again. You know, I'm always good with the backstory. Yeah, so let of me give you a little are. bit of a bit more of the backstory. We lived in hell. Mm. The children and I actually lived in hell, mm. and there was violence, there was abuse, yes, there, was there was physical, yeah. emotional, financial, spiritual, a lot of abuse. And we, in order to get out of that, it was very much, when you're in a cycle of abuse and you become a little bit conscious of what's going on, you realize that you're not presenting the best version of yourself to the world. Mm-hmm. So as I started to heal from that, what I wanted to do was heal myself so that I could give the children the opportunity to always present the best versions of themselves to the world. Mm-hmm. So we created a bit of an ethos around that. Um, Marley, who is now 13, he started his business when he was 10 And he quit school when he was nine. So he believed that he was too stupid to go to school. And it wasn't, it wasn't anything to do with the school or the teachers. They were great. It was just, he was feeling that he wasn't good enough to be there. So I said, tragedy. And many, many kids are like that nowadays. Many children. And so I said to him, okay, let's quit and do this differently. So we did. And he quit school. And this is when you were still in. This is now when I was back in Adelaide. Oh, he quit at ten and nine in Adelaide. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So he'd already been to five schools before he was nine, and so I was like, okay, if this isn't working for you, then let's quit it. And so he quit, and we then created a model of social enterprise around his education. Mm-hmm. So. Through his business, which is called 99% Marley. He and how can they hear about 99% Marley? 99% Marley is on YouTube and um, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. There's sections about him on our Intuit Africa website. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, he's sort of everywhere. Okay. <laughs> They're all kind of becoming everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so his business was really born out of his intention to make the world 99% kinder, 99% more grateful, and 99% more courageous. And that was based on the fact that we'd lived the opposite of those virtues. So we had that lived experience of of what it felt like to be unappreciated and um, to live around cowardice as opposed to courage. Mm. And so he created those three hashtags, created a line of clothing, and has a podcast called 99 Seconds with Marley. Wow. So through those things, he learned how to read, he learned how to write, he learned how to add, he learned how to communicate with adults, uh, he le- he's learned how to manage his own business, he's learned how to do you know simple spreadsheets and inventory and managing his money. Uh, as I said, we used, we've always used the Barefoot Investor model and they, the kids all have really transformed themselves from consumers into contributors mm. because with that particular model, they have a splurge envelope, a smile envelope, and a give envelope. And so after they do a market stall or whatever they've done to generate some money, they then sit with their cash and decide w- which envelope it's going to go into. So they always put the least into their splurge which mm-hmm. is what they can use to spend on anything they want. Mm-hmm. Then they'll generally they'll put the most into their save because that's what they reinvest into more stock. Mm-hmm. And then they give their money into the projects that the kids and I also built in Africa. Mm-hmm. And the smile envelope is? So that's the investment. Mm. So your smile um, on the barefoot scheme is that the smile is what you invest or mm-hmm. save. Mm. So, for an example, Marley, we've got a, a gig coming up tomorrow evening and Marley's like, so I need to put this amount of money into my smile because I know I need to purchase more stock in this time period. Mm. So it's been a really fascinating process to watch and all three children follow that model. Mm. So Marley's now 13. I, I just want to make one quick point. And this isn't at all what the show is going to be about, but uh, I just want to say that, you know, as a business person myself for uh, well over 30 years, um, one of the most important things, and this is true even if you're not a business person, is you got to pay yourself first. Yep. And, and that's so key. That was the only way, that was the way that I got wealthy, wasn't, you know, all these mm. businesses I've, I've had, all these 80, 100 hour weeks that I put in. Yep. It's the fact that I, went, once I started p- putting money aside, paying myself first and making sure that I invested, yep. you know, yep. uh, and then I just let it sit there forever and it grew eventually. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, uh, Warren Buffett talks about that. He talks about how nobody likes to get rich slowly. But sure. that, but that's the best way to do it, mm, you mm, know. So yeah. I, I just I, I know that's not what we're focusing on today, um, but I just wanted to throw that out mm. there for anybody listening. Uh, it can be a real life changer, and, and and more importantly, you know, now that I'm you know uh, over fifty, it, it's it allows you to do things for your family, you know that. Uh, you just didn't think you'd ever be able to do. So it's so, so important. Well, and it's so, you know? it's such a teachable thing because I didn't do that. Mm. Well, they don't teach it in school. They should. They don't teach it in school. And that's what the, the massive message that the Barefoot Investor is all about mm. is that the ch- children go to school for 13 years mm. and they come out with very little financial literacy. Well, I would say none, but. Yeah. Well, he would also say none. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. And so. 
the the movement around what he does is is really about that, which I think is now a great segue into Amalia. Of course, that's what <laughs> yeah, I was doing. Look at that. You silver tongued devil, you yeah, figured me yeah. out. Okay. So Amalia is eight years old, and she started her business when she was six. She uh, started by making soaps and candles, and then I asked her. I asked all of my kids, "What would you like to be now?" Instead of waiting until you grow up, what would you like to be now? Mm, wow, what a great question. i got to write that down. It's a really, really yes, good so question. Powerful. However, um, as a parent, when you ask your child that question, you've then got to be really prepared to invest in the answer mm. because otherwise the kids won't trust you. That's true. Yeah, that so makes sense. Amalia said to me, Mum, I want to be everything that I already am but add fashion design. Mm. So I gave her a sketchbook and a pencil and she created a collection. I had some old African materials that I'd collected in my travels and so she made a collection uh, called the African Heritage Collection, which she then started modelling at small events around Adelaide. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, asking asking children that question, I think we're very stuck in the paradigm here of um, what are you going to be when you grow up and we're, we're constantly pushing things back and – um, what what you'll see in the Barefoot Investor Kids book is kids that are actually not waiting and and parents who are questioning why we wait. Why do we wait until children finish school for them to be something or do something? Mm. But with my children, in terms of asking them that question, it's taken me a lot of energy to uh, validate, not not to validate, but to, to actually execute what they've wanted to do because I didn't know how to do it. You know, mm. I don't know how to sew. I don't know how to design. I don't know how to do anything. And I'm building schools in Africa. Mm. So if you're going to ask your child that question, and I think in the Barefoot Investor book, they've quoted Amalia as saying, there's a quote in one part of the book that's like, if your parents tell you they don't have time to help you, um, sort of don't believe them or, or make sure they make the time to help you. Mm, wow. Yeah, and and I think we learn Matt as parents, you know, actually investing in our kids. It's um it activates their purpose and it really is about changing the world because mm. and my three are we've just been a work in progress. We've stepped out of a, a normal type paradigm and gone okay, let's experiment and try something different. And they're all very well adjusted. They're very self-sufficient. Um, they, they, they just have these skills where they can take them now and, and do anything. Wow. That's awesome stuff. Um, let's talk about uh, your son real quick, Mark. Oh, we talked a we little talked bit about, about Marley. Marley. We're up to Aaliyah. Let's, yeah, let's talk about Aaliyah. I'm sorry. Aaliyah. Because we, we kind of obliquely talked about her with the barefoot investor. <laughs> no, that's but, Amalia. The oh, problem with, the, oh, the problem with my kids A's. is too a, many A's. I know. Aaliyah's the oldest. I mean, I've met them all too many multiple times. A's. So, Amelia, yeah, I'm sorry. My dad used to do that he, when we would do something, except you do it when it's positive. I, I do it. I, it happened to me when we were doing something wrong. My dad would go, Matt Mitch. We're all Matt Mitch and Mike. He'd be like, Matt Mitch. You, you tell me which one you are. I know where you live. You tell me who you are, and, and I'll stop you from doing that. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, mine, mine, it's easy to mix them up because they are. So Aaliyah, um, even taking it back to the book, there's a huge part of the book about Aaliyah. There's, well, there's actually chapters about all of the children. Aaliyah came into my life as my second adopted child mm. from Kenya. Mm-hmm. 
And her, when we adopted Aaliyah, so we'd already adopted Tashania seven years prior and it had been such an amazing experience that we made the conscious intention and choice of adopting a second one. And at the time of her adoption, I'll take you back to um, the chaos. At the time of her adoption, I was living in Qatar Mm. and my husband decided that he would base himself in Kenya as we went through this adoption process which we did. I travelled in and out of Qatar, school holidays and what have you. So we, because we already had adopted Aaliyah, we then, I understood the system of adoption and understood how we could fast track the adoption process in order to get Aaliyah out of Qatar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we could all be reunited. Mm-hmm. So after we'd done the six-month fostering of Aaliyah, we filed for adoption under a certificate of urgency. Mm-hmm. Went to court in Kenya, had the case heard, and our adoption was granted. Cool. Fantastic. So I went back to Qatar. My husband then went to get Aaliyah a passport, and the children's department refused to give her a passport. So at the time... Because... Well, as oh. the, the drama that chased oh. my life everywhere. So, actually, let's hold off on that one for a second if we can. Uh-huh. Uh, no, go ahead. Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> Tell us about it. Tell us about being arrested in Qatar. No, no, no. This one, this one I didn't get arrested. Oh, okay. This one, Aaliyah. So there had been a, a Kenyan priest uh-huh. who had abducted 14 babies, kidnapped them and taken them to England. Wow. And so he was up for child trafficking at exactly the time that we were adopting Aaliyah. Mm. So because I'd filed under a certificate of urgency, red lights went on, red Mm. flags went up Mm. in the children's department, and they then refused to give Aaliyah a passport. But not only did they refuse to give her a passport, they claimed that we had bribed the high court judge. They wanted to take Aaliyah back out of our care. Wow. And put her back in the orphanage. Wow. So that was when when things like that, you know, in comparison to the train crash, mm. this oh. one was way more stressful. Yeah, oh, yeah of this course. One was, yeah. Yeah. yeah, of course. And so it was it was really crazy. I was in Qatar. My husband was in Kenya. We had this baby. The government wanted to take the baby away. Even our lawyer was saying, "We'll just put the baby back in the in the orphanage and you know get another one or, or something like that." Wow. So. We also then, because we'd been accused of bribing the judge, we also couldn't get another judge to hear our case. So it was really, really tough. But we are, as as the title of the book suggests, nothing is too big and this wasn't too big for us. And we were very blessed to have a female judge who is now a very successful uh, judge and politician in Kenya who agreed to hear our case. And we went and we did all the paperwork again and we imagine we got her adopted twice. Wow. So, yeah, so she was very, very, very loved from from the moment she came into our lives. And she... You kind of want her to to have the typical teenage thing when she's 13 or 14 at that point and go, oh, you don't love me. You didn't you know, you want them to do that. So you can go, you were adopted twice. You can pull that big, that big stick out. <laughs> well, the, the, the interesting one with Aaliyah is I think that, and I think what happens with a lot of children nowadays, like on a serious note, is mm-hmm. she actually really internalized that. And at the age of 14, she had made the choice not to be here anymore. Mm. 
and be, be in Australia, be alive, be alive. Okay. Mm. So she'd made this choice and messaged me to tell me she was ending it. The text most mothers are looking forward to, yeah, obviously not. No, so oh my goodness. and at that point. It was very much about, luckily, I had already... So, were you in the same country at the time? We were in the same country, but we weren't in the same state. I was in Adelaide, and she was still living with her dad in Melbourne uh, because she was at secondary school, and so she decided that she wanted to go to state school in Melbourne. And that was one of the men that had been physical with you. Yeah, but that was that was... The physical in that relationship was very, very, very early on mm-hmm. in the relationship, and then we hadn't had any anything since then. So we actually had a really good relationship. Okay. okay. And and he'd taken care of the kids when I was um, okay stuck in Qatar and and okay. what have you. So with Aaliyah, what we did, not we, what I did, was I'd been back in Australia for a little while at this point, and I been teaching in Australia and had been exposed to children who I believed were very broken Mm -hmm. within a system that was very broken. And we've seemed to – I feel like in Australia we've commoditized values and situations and and made them into profit-driven entities Mm. rather than actually looking at the person as a a soul and as a person who who needs some nourishment. Mm. So what we did is we flipped Aaliyah's situation. It took us a couple of years, but we flipped her situation for her to really understand, again, that she's here on earth for a a purpose that's bigger than herself. Mm -hmm. And that was with that realisation is then when she started her own organisation with her mission to keep a million girls in Kenya in school with access to sanitary products. Mm -hmm. So she now runs a small organisation where she provides washable sanitary products to girls in Kenya. And she, she does public speaking, which is generally how she raises the money for what she does. She employs ladies in Kenya. And she really understands that she could have been one of those girls. Well, and also, I mean, the reason why that's important, we need to let the audience know, is because... In in Africa, because they don't they don't have access to those kind of products, young girls don't. Mm. That means they have to miss what one or two weeks is a month of school. Yeah, like a week a month. Yeah. yeah. So that means mm. that they're not being educated. Yeah, yeah. So it it really sets girls so much further behind mm. because of a lack of access to sanitary products. Mm-hmm. And so what Aaliyah has done is she's really understood that she and I were meant to meet. Mm-hmm. in this lifetime to be together and that this was something that we were supposed to be purposeful on together. And so she she really looks at it like she leverages her capacity of being in Australia with how she can contribute to, to girls who could have been her. Now, she's been in the advertiser, I know. She has. She was uh, in the advertiser recently as uh, South Australia's most influential, a group of 25 most influential women mm. in South Australia mm. at eighteen, or but b- before she was eighteen, because she was just turned eighteen. Before she recently. was eighteen, yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah. And then, and 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 then of course, Amalia's in, in the Barefoot Investor, the yes. new Barefoot Investor book. Yes, and um, I, I can't, which one of them was on SBS again? I can't keep track. All of us were on SBS. All, all four of you. Okay, okay, that's why I couldn't remember. Yeah, which we, one were was all, all of you. we were okay. all on SBS Insight. In May of this year, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
and that was amazing. So they flew over and they the, the episode was actually about inheritance. Mm-hmm. So what we did with our inheritance. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they flew over. They did – they spent the day in our house filming the kids and, you know, these are massive, massive learning experiences mm-hmm. and massive life experiences for the children. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's hard for me to keep track because every time I <laughs> – Don't worry, know, I can't keep track Every time either. I get on LinkedIn, this one's in the advertiser, <laughs> this one's in, on SBS, this one's on, you know, I don't know, something, you know. Yeah. <laughs> something exciting's happening. Um, I just want to take a step back, though. When you get this message uh, about – you know, I mean, did, did she message you or call you and say that she wanted to end it? How did that? I mean, because I understand you got to turn around in two years, but you've also got to do something now, like this second. Yeah. So I, I know you, so I know you're a person mm. of action. So mm. I know you weren't going to go, oh, okay, well, uh, all right, I'll goodbye, and and then think about how you're going to fix it. I, I know you did something right away. Yeah. What, tell it yeah, what well, happened. Well, the first thing that I was actually driving into the gym. So I was in Adelaide and it was at night and I was driving into the gym and got the message. So the first thing that I... So she texted you? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She texted me. <laughs> okay. And the first thing that I did was uh, call her dad, mm-hmm. whose house she lived in, who mm-hmm. was in the next room and didn't know that any of this was happening. Mm-hmm. So she was then put on a 24-hour watch. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, they took her to the school psychologist. And mm-hmm. then that evening, I flew over. Mm-hmm. And brought her back to Adelaide. Okay. So that was... How did Dad feel about that, though? Uh, well, he was probably quite relieved because... Yeah, I would have been. Because, I mean, that's a massive responsibility, yeah, isn't I, it? It's I a would, massive responsibility. Yeah I, 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 yeah, I don't know how... Yeah. yeah. So that was that was the decision that we made. Mm-hmm. And we've been very fortunate that it, it was a really good decision. Mm-hmm. And, yeah... We've we've looked at some of the things that that one that one actually sort of went away. If that's not the right way to put it, but that one that one settled, and then a couple of years later, there was some. uh, I've I've talked about it in the book, but I think it's also really important to recognise that in the book, what I've talked about is my version of every story. Mm-hmm. And so my kids, I don't, Aaliyah might be not very happy that I've put this in the book. Like mm-hmm. I've told her that it's there, but it's really about my journey as her parent mm-hmm. and how I've responded to that. Because when she had, then two years later, um, I found out that she was self-harming. Oh my goodness. And that was in the form of razor blades on, on her arms. And again, as you know, like as a parent to be confronted with that. Yeah. That's like massive. So again, I'd done a lot more work on myself by the time that I got to this discovery and I really sat with it and um, and I looked at how we deal with things like this in Australia and I feel like we do it in a very clinical manner and we also constantly outsource the care and the, the expertise and I studied a course on conscious parenting, which is basically about um, children are a projection of our wounds. So if our children are not feeling whole, it's a wound within ourselves that we need to heal. Mm-hmm. So again, I just started looking back into myself and what I needed to do for in, within myself to heal this within Aaliyah. 
And we then actually adopted a model of scarring in African culture as being a rite of passage. It's a real threshold of ceremony and beauty and ritual and you've passed from being a child to being an adult. Mm -hmm. And scars are not seen as something negative. They're actually seen as something really positive. So I did some a bit of research around that, but then really said to Aaliyah, we're going to love this as a rite of passage. And it also activated within me the fact that here in Australia, we've, we've lost our sense of ritual. We've lost our sense of community. And I think that that's also a, a huge contributing factor as to why we have so many children who are lost. Mm. They don't know where they stand. They don't know where they fit in. They don't know who they are. And... Whereas, for example, in an African culture, you know, you always know because everything, every part of your life is connected to ritual, it's connected to ceremony, it's connected to community. So you always know who you are and why you're here. Mm. So we did that. We've been very, very fortunate. And the reason why I talk about it is because I do feel that it's such a pivotal teaching point for people in Australia because this is an epidemic that we're going through. Mm. Wow. So, of course, you're not recommending people self-harm. No, 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 uh, yeah, no, no. I, I, I'm just making no, that no, clear no. for the <laughs> no, listeners. No, but, no, no. But, but I think your point of, of you know, people uh, that we've lost something as far as not having rituals, not having clearly defined uh, roles and, and, and expectations of ourselves and – and, and Everyone's just sort of swimming you know, around. Yeah, I think that's I think that's so true. It's so true. and it's really sad. And I think we as adults have to own that. We mm. we have to look at you know the choices that we've made to discard it and and the impacts that it has. But I don't think we even consciously think about it. Mm. But I mean, you know, Aaliyah and and people who know Aaliyah, she's hosting the event tomorrow night. Um, she she that event is the book launch. That's the book launch, which is uh, of course the book is called Nothing Is Too Big. And where's that being held? That's being held at the Hamra Library on Brooker Terrace at Calendilla. At what time? At six thirty. Six thirty. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, I think I had finished that point. Okay, all right. I thought you still had a little bit of room to go. I would, let's go back to you. We've talked about your children, okay. which of course are, is what you're most proud about, mm, most yeah. excited about. But let's talk a little bit about you. Sure. Um, you've had uh, obviously some challenges. You're, some, you've had domestic violence. You've been through domestic violence yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've come out the other side. You've had a bankruptcy. <laughs> Yeah, which, which most people don't it's more laugh like, at. Susan, what haven't you had? <laughs> most people don't laugh. But, and, I, and as I'm sitting here, I just want the audience to know that wasn't a maniacal laugh. Okay, so yeah, yeah, yeah. She's not. She's not off her meds. No, she's just no, a happy person. Exactly. Okay, right. Exactly. So, um, can you tell tell us what you've learned from? Let's start with the domestic violence situations you've been mm-hmm. through. What you learned from that? I mean, in your book, you talk about how. The abusers, you know, uh, they're very fragile egos. You talked about that. I mean, Mm -hmm. talk about what you learned about that situation, and then let's talk about what you learned from the bankruptcy. Okay, so from the domestic violence, I learned, and it's on a really deep level because, again, I think I think we have to think outside the box if we really want to heal these issues. I learned that I am a hundred percent responsible for every person's situation and event that comes into my life. So energetically, I drew that those experiences in 
And once I take responsibility for them, I'm able to forgive myself and I'm therefore able to forgive others. So I learned that I was 100% responsible and I learned that being a victim is a choice. Mm. And it was a choice because I had young children at the time. It was a choice that I wasn't willing to afford. So it was get yourself together. Get yourself together. So I take responsibility on an energetic level for drawing that experience in because that experience activated me to heal what I needed to heal within myself. Mm. So the key is you're not a victim. Absolutely not a victim. Mm. Absolutely not a victim. I am a creator and I am very, very grateful to that situation. Because it helps you grow. Because it brought it, it actually became the catalyst for who I am now and what I do now. Mm. So I have an awful lot of gratitude for it. In terms of the bankruptcy, the bankruptcy taught me abundance mm. because it taught me what I need, which is very little. I actually don't need very much. And I think what I needed is children that are whole and healed and and live peaceful lives and to create a, a, a an environment of sufficiency where we're sufficient and we're grateful. Mm-hmm. Mm. So basically what you're saying is when you're stripped away from every when you, when everything is stripped away mm-hmm. that's when you actually figure out what's important to you. And it's such a beautiful experience because yes absolutely because I lost my kids I lost my money, I lost my identity, I lost my houses, I lost absolutely everything. Mm. And so what it did is it's like, you know, like a glass that's empty, you've then got um, an opportunity to fill it up. And the way that I started to fill it up was, which is also in the book, is then creating my year of deliberate intention where every single thing I did was done with such a conscious intention, whereas I think lots of us are running on this hamster wheel of um, unconscious. We we don't even know what we're doing or why we're doing Mm. it. So I created this year of deliberate intention, and then out of that we've created a life of deliberate intention. Yeah, we were talking about that the other day. I mean, uh, I think a lot of us are just waiting to die. We're just going through the motions until then. Especially here in Australia. I hate to be negative, but I mean, that's... But especially here in Australia, I mean, I spend a lot of time in Africa and I I work in resource poor communities where, you know, they don't have a sanitary pad or they don't have running water and they're not waiting to die. They're living every single moment of every single day. Mm. And now that's what my kids and I do. We, We just live every single moment and we live with so much peace and so much gratitude and it's great. We love it. So what was the very first thing you wanted to put in that empty glass? Peace. Okay. And then after that? Love. And then? Uh, sufficiency. Okay. Mm. Tell us a little bit about uh, being in Qatar and separated from your children and, <laughs> and, and you know, being arrested, that whole thing. I mean, tell me, I mean. So, yeah, there's just so many I mean, stories. I mean, yeah, <laughs> there are so many, but I mean, that's a... That's the one that I, I kind of mm. want to end with that one. And, and, and then we're going to talk about the key takeaways. Okay. Uh, you know, so give us the Reader's, uh, reader's Digest condensed version here in two or three minutes. So uh, Qatar is now hosting the World Cup. Mm-hmm. 
and we love Qatar with a passion. We'd hoped to be there for the World Cup. Two mm-hmm. of my kids were born there. Mm-hmm. The other two grew up there. They actually consider Qatar home. Mm-hmm. And when I worked for – and we'd lived there for 10 years. And when there was a restructuring at my work and 50 of us were retrenched and their labour laws at the time were such that if you lost your job and you had a bank loan in the country, you couldn't get out without paying the loan. Mm. And I didn't have the money to pay the loan. So basically it was debtor's prison. Yes. Yes. Of which at the time there were thousands and thousands of people in that situation. Wow. And many of those people were from resource poor communities where there was no one who would be able to bail them out. Mm. So I was quite fortunate. So I, I had a court case because I was, as an Australian, I was looking for a logical outcome to this situation. And so, you, you know, you go to court, but court is all conducted in Arabic and I don't speak Arabic and you haven't committed a crime, but you're there in front of a judge. So you're looking for a logical answer, which is really, well, you can either dissolve the loan or let me get another job so that I can pay it back. And that just wasn't going to happen under their labor laws. That just wasn't going to happen. Mm. So I was seven months pregnant at the time. Mm-hmm. And eventually my dad bailed me out the money in order for me to leave Qatar. Mm-hmm. But then because I'd been because my daughter was born in Qatar to a non working mother, she was now born illegally. So there was another whole process around that. And and I think you know, it it they're there look that's the laws of their country. We choose to go and live there and you don't know what you don't know until you're, you're swimming in it. Mm-hmm. And I know that at the moment there's lots of conversations about what Qatar are doing to, around the World Cup and alcohol and, and those sorts of things. But, you know, it's, it's the way that they govern their value system and who are we to judge that? So at the time when I was in Qatar, I was still having a – life was good and everything was still okay. I just couldn't get out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. So uh, what's the one thing that you learned from there that you want to uh, have the audience carry away with? One thing I learned from that situation, mm-hmm. um, it, it would be connected to judgment – it would be it would be connected to judgment and the quite often as westerners we are quite egotistical in our judgment of other cultures we judge them through our own lens and that doesn't work mm. so yeah i mean as i said we really love it when i left qatar people were people never ever thought i would go back and they they thought i would be crazy to go back and i've been back many 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 times and I've taken my kids back, which was a very big part of their healing because they'd left under such traumatic circumstances. Again, it's gratitude. It's life. Look, it's given us an interesting story to talk about. Mm. <laughs> so many interesting So, so how, how long were you separated from your children? Three years. Wow. Mm-hmm. And how did you cope with that? Well, at the time, I my son was only five, five, ten, and 16 when they came to Australia. And after I got out of Qatar, I got a job teaching in Rwanda. So I moved to Rwanda with the intention that they were going to come and live with me in Rwanda, which their dad decided he wasn't happy about. So, you know, I'm now 
head of a big international school in Rwanda and working with a whole team of people who were genocide survivors. Mm. And so it really gave me a very levelling perspective because my children were actually safe and happy and loved and educated and had health care as opposed to many of my colleagues who lost their children to genocide. Wow. And, and how many uh, schools have you opened up yourself in Rand? <laughs> Only two, man. Only two, okay. Only I, two. I couldn't remember if it was three. I thought it was three. I just had that off. And, no. Sorry about that. Two okay. schools. Only two. And two You've libraries. only created two schools and two <laughs> libraries. <sighs> but this people, is just the beginning. We've uh, got really, really big plans. I don't know. Some people like you just really need to pick up their game. <laughs> they do. They do. I mean, don't come back here again until you've opened another up school. another school you know, and, and impacted another few hundred lives. Well, I don't so. think we're going to open any more schools. I think mm-hmm. we're going to take over like the management of other schools and, and create these ideologies around education. And I'm a very big believer in bridging resource-rich and resource-poor because I believe that Australians have got more to learn from the communities that I'm in in Africa mm. than we have to teach them. Wow. Well, I want to I wanna just say a couple quick things. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to thank Mark for paneling with us, and, and, and Susan, I really want to thank you for being here today. And I just want to talk about you for a second without uh, you talking. Oh, gosh. And, and, I, and I, I just want to say that, you know, when as I was sitting here listening to you talk, I was thinking about uh, a uh, movie that I saw years and years ago about this fella who uh, he was working on a deep water rig, okay, and his oxygen got cut off, okay, and he's a mile underwater, and he ends up because it was a horrible storm. It, it, it was actually the tender boat was ripped from the from the uh, the oil rig under underwater, and so he's separated from his oxygen. He's only got about I don't know ten minutes of air left, and they couldn't even get the the, the boat right to the to the same place to try to help this guy for about half an hour. So they figured it was just a recovery mission, and he survived. And the reason why he survived, he said, was because he had hope. He yeah. knew his friends would not leave him behind. You know, when you hear about that with soldiers, you hear about mm. that with police that have been shot, where they know they're not going to be left behind. There's someone there who cares yep. and is committed to helping them. And, you know, it made me think that there are two types of people in the world. There are the type of people like Susan Knapp, okay, who care you know, who want to help others, who are not going to leave them behind. And then there's the other kind of person who's kind of negative and wants to give up and, and wants everybody else to give up too, just like them. And I just hope that all of us can be more like Susan Neff. So that's all we have for today. And we're looking forward to hearing from you all again uh, at 6 o'clock next Monday.